Several years ago, I um, got a call very early in the morning, went over to this home, about five in the morning. Night before, the father had come home drunk. He and the teenage daughter, who was in open rebellion, gotten in a fight, a screaming argument. Mother tried to separate them. And the father stepped out on the front porch, took a gun out of his belt, and shot himself in the head. The mother had called me, asked me to come over early, because the 11-year-old son had slept through it all, and he wasn't up yet, and she wanted me to be there to help explain to him what had just happened. And here was a family that was shattered, shredded, destroyed, in unbelievable pain and confusion. Now, God is good. I know it. But how do you say that to a 16-year-old girl whose father has just viciously and selfishly taken his own life in the middle of their argument? How do you say that to a mother who still has the blood of her husband on her clothing? How could you possibly say that to, to an 11-year-old boy who's waking up to a world that's shattered, that's out of control? How could they not scream out, God, how could you let this happen? You know, we've been talking a lot about life, about our own lives. Uh, several weeks ago, we uh, talked about how often in our own lives, life feels out of control. We're so busy, almost out of control. Uh, families, marriages are devastated, destroyed. Work seems to demand so much of us, takes such a, a big part of our heart. And we want, we, we, we almost desperately desire to follow God in the midst of all of this, but, but we wonder how and when we're going to fit it in. How's it going to work? Things are not like they should be. That much is obvious to anybody, to all of us, as we think about it. Now, there are joys, there are pleasures, delights. Life isn't relentlessly painful. Sometimes it's wonderful. Sometimes it's great. But the fact is, there is still death. There's still struggle. There's still disappointments and confusion. We still struggle whether life is good. We still try to understand it. Now, how did it get this way? What happened? Is this the way it was designed? Was this God's plan? If it was, how could we say God is good? Well, to answer that, we want to go back to the beginning, to look at what happened. We're going to be studying Genesis 3 this morning. It tells us what happened. But before uh, we even get into Genesis 3, I want to back up a little farther and review, remind ourselves what happened. Even in Genesis 1, Genesis 1 tells us that, that God created us in His image. He, he created us with three fundamental aspects to our personality. We are spiritual, we are vocational, we are sexual. You know, we're, we're spiritual, we're created in His image, designed to know Him, to be, uh, to be in loving relationship with Him. We are are vocational. We're designed to work, to, 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 to affect our environment, to, to, like David talked about last week, to bring beauty to this world. And we are designed to be sexual beings. Male and female, He created us. That is our design. And the most fundamental aspect of our personality is our spirituality. We were designed specifically to walk with God, to listen to Him, to interact with Him, to learn 
from Him. See, that's the thing that distinguishes us from animals. We talked about this before. God hardwired into animals instinctive ways of relating to their own species, instinctive social organizations, instinctive ways of finding a mate, instinctive ways of raising their young, instinctive ways of of reacting to their environment. Animals basically all react in the same way according to their species, but human beings are different. We were designed to walk with God, to learn from Him, to interact with Him, to listen to Him. And as we did, He would show us how to interact, to relate to other humans out of love, like He does. He would show us how how to be true partners with our mates. He would show us how to lovingly raise our young. He would, would show us how to engage our environment, our world, how, how to work, and to, to bring beauty to it, as He did. You see, what God would do, would teach us, at our level, as creatures, how to be like Him. That was His design. I once heard Major Ian Thomas teach, and I don't know if you ever had that wonderful opportunity. He always poked the air when he taught. And I remember distinctly, it's still in my ears, that he said, The Spirit of God was to be in man what instinct is to be in animals. Chapter 2 of Genesis, uh, David taught last week. It it wonderfully reinforces this, uh, elaborates on this, showing us that God's design for work was that we were to learn from God. We were to look around at the garden, at what God had done, and be like Him, do what He did, as we walked with Him to take what He did and to, to bring beauty to the rest of the earth. The chapter also told us what the intent, what the design was for our sexuality, to have a loving partnership with someone who is like us, but different. And to, to, to be true mates. I love that word that David used because it really pictures that partnership, that friendship. And we were, we were to work together and to love together and explore and delight together. That was God's design. You see, that's what our original parents had. A beautiful garden, a beautiful environment that was just filled with everything they needed. There were lush Beautiful trees that, that, that brought shade and, and delighted the soul and were just drooping with food. They could walk up, pick it, and eat. They didn't have to worry where their next meal was going to come from. It was already hanging there on the trees. They had each other. Someone who was perfectly suited to themselves. Someone who was like them, yet very different in important ways. You see, in those differences, those those physical differences and emotional differences and other differences, those differences were there to be explored, to be understood, to be delighted in. They were naked and unashamed. Physically, they were completely comfortable, open to each other. But you see, also, intellectually, emotionally, every other way, they were completely comfortable, open to each other. To each other as well. And they walked with God. They, 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 they walked with Him face to face. Now, I don't know whether God took a, a body or whether they were so spiritually acute that they perceived Him concretely by their spirits. 
But they talked with God, just like I'm talking to you, this concretely. He was, he was as real as their own bodies, as everything they saw. They experienced God, and that was their greatest joy and delight, because that was their ultimate design and purpose. See, as we look at the garden, we look at these two accounts, we know, each one of us deep down, that that's the way it should be. And we ache for it, not as some fantastic mythical ideal, but as the very thing we were designed for. It's the way it should be. And it hurts, it galls. It frustrates, it confuses us that it's not that way anymore. It should be. But before we look at, at what happened, let me review one more thing from chapter 2. When God put humans in the garden, He also filled the garden with trees. Now, there's a profound relationship between humans and trees. A desert is a place with no trees. We go up into the mountains to get away, to retreat. Why? Because there's trees there. The first thing you do when you, when you, when you have a, a brand new home is you plant trees. Trees have a profound effect on us. They are beauty. They're shade. They're, they're, they're a delight to our souls. They, they touch something deep in us. They're refreshing. As God said, they are delightful to the eyes. Good for food. In the garden, there were two special trees. One was the tree of life. The other was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Like David pointed out last week, these weren't magical trees. They were real trees that God used to make a point. Those trees were there as a constant reminder to the human that God was the source of these things. God was the source of life. God's basically saying, listen, you get your life from me, and I give it gladly. I want you to have life. I'm your creator. You're my creature, and I gladly give it to you. I am God. You are not. Keep that in mind. That's essential. That's the, the, the starting place of everything else you will learn in life. And I, as your loving creator, am telling you, do not eat the knowledge the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because on the day you do that, you will surely die. Now, it wasn't that God didn't want humans to know the difference between good and evil. That's absolutely essential to our health and to our happiness. The terms good and evil connote far more than just right and wrong. They mean that, but they also mean beneficial and destructive, healthy and rotten, sweet, and poisonous. You see, it's important that we understand the difference between what is healthy and what's destructive. We need to know these things in our lives, in our relationships. It's absolutely essential. But God's plan was that as we walked with Him, He would be our ultimate mentor. He would teach us these things. He would show it to us. He would explain it to us and why and how. And we would learn about life from Him. We would learn about life in our relationship with Him. Because ultimately, that's the only place we can really come to the knowledge of good, in our relationship with Him. He is the only source of good. And even things that are good become deadly 
when separated from Him. We were to walk with Him, to learn from Him. And what God was doing in placing that tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden was truly making humans free. He was giving humans real choice. They could choose whether they walked with Him and learned from Him and grew intimate with Him or whether they would reject Him and to seek to have the knowledge of good and evil apart from Him on their own. It was a real choice that He gave them. But as Stuart Briscoe reminds us, Man was created to live in an environment of dependent obedience in the same way that an albatross was created for air and whales were created for water. That's our design. And now we're ready for chapter 3. It starts with the serpent, who uh, Revelation 12, 9 tells us was really Satan. It says that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. Now whether Satan took on the form of a certain serpent or whether he possessed an actual serpent or whether if, if our spiritual eyes were more acute, we would see him that way today. I, I don't know. And some other time, like the scripture does, we can talk about where he comes from. But verse 1 Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now it's interesting, in Hebrew, the first word that the the serpent says is untranslatable. It's literally, It's a particle of disrespect and mocking. It's, Did God actually tell you that? And you believed him? The woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Now, there there are slight differences between what God actually said and what the woman reported. She leaves out the fact that God said, You may freely eat from all of them. God's generosity was shining through. And she kind of leaves that out. And she adds... You can't even touch this tree. God never said that. Most people see in this that, that, that confusion and doubt is already starting to creep in. The serpent goes on. You will not surely die. The serpent said to the woman, God's lying to you. You're not going to die. You're so simple. You'll believe anything, won't you? I mean, it's nothing bad is going to happen. There won't be bad consequences. In fact, it'll be good. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God doesn't really love you. He's scared of you. He knows that if you eat that, you won't need Him anymore. You'll be like Him. You'll know it all for yourself. You won't be so silly. You won't be be so gullible. See, if God was good, He'd give it to you. But He's withholding it from you. Because he wants to keep you down. He wants to keep control over you. And then the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now there was nothing wrong with the woman wanting food. There was nothing wrong with the woman wanting the delight of fruit. God was gladly giving her that. 
There was nothing wrong with her wanting wisdom. But the core issue was that she didn't trust God enough to obey Him. She began to doubt His goodness, and she got very confused. Probably the most startling aspect of this account is the silence of Adam. He was standing there, watching. He didn't say a word. He didn't try to stop her. He just watched. And when she didn't fall over dead like he thought she was going to, he decided that he would eat as well. He was willing to sacrifice her to this experiment. Now, Scripture tells us elsewhere that the woman was deceived. But Adam, the one to whom God had originally given the instructions, the one who saw so clearly and beautifully God's goodness manifest in creating Eve for him, Adam was without excuse. He did what he did knowing what he was doing. He chose to disobey God in the face of God's goodness. He chose to reject God. He chose to be independent of God. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked. Now, the serpent had told Eve, he he hadn't lied to Eve, that your eyes would be open, but this isn't what Eve had in mind. The serpent had lied when he said there won't be anything bad happen, it will be good. Sin always has consequences. If he needed to, maybe he would have also said, well, sure, it's technically wrong, but God will forgive you, you can move on. People, it's a lie that sin doesn't have have consequence. It always has has consequence. I've used this before, but I could take this pen and stick it into my eye. God would lovingly forgive me, but there will be consequences. It will hurt for a long time, and I'll probably spend the rest of my life blind. It says they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Immediately there was consequence. Immediately they covered up. Guilt had entered the human experience. Guilt is the most devastating, destructive of all of human experience, all of human emotion, and it is the inevitable consequence of sin. Not that everyone feels guilty. Many have their hearts cauterized by, by, by resistance, by blindness. Now, all of us, So often, so hard, we try to suppress guilt and to sublimate it. And it starts popping up elsewhere. But guilt, the reality of guilt, warps and destroys the human personality and relationships. Immediately, it separated the man and the woman. They covered up. Immediately, it separated them from God. They hid. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Here we see fear enter human experience. And fear infested every area of human experience. Fear becomes the dominant motivator of human experience. You know, fear infested 
in the spiritual area. And throughout history, fear has driven people in their spiritual lives to try to appease the gods. They, they live in fear. And fear infested the, 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 uh, uh, the work area, the, the area of trying to survive on this globe. Fear infested relationships, our sexuality and our relationships. Fear, not love. Fear, not trust and obedience. Fear became the dominant motivator of human behavior. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Immediately Adam turns on his wife. Again, he's willing to sacrifice her to to, to try to shield his own pride, to try to cover up his own shame. The woman, she says, it, it, it was the serpent. See, neither one of them looked God in the eye and said, yes, I sinned. I'm sorry. Please help me. Neither one turned in trust and in dependence. Immediately, they tried to cover. They tried to shift the blame. Adam even willing to blame God for putting Eve there in the first place when Eve was such a wonderful gift, such a blessing, such an expression of God's goodness and generosity. See, neither one of them were willing to turn to God. And the die was cast for human experience that we constantly try to cover, hide, and blame. We constantly believe the lies that God isn't good, that He's trying to rip us off. We believe the lie that, that, that intelligence and sophistication is expressed in defiance of God. We cover, we blame, we do everything that we can think of, everything that we can come up with to avoid the fact that we have sinned. We have done this thing. The Bible tells us that Adam, as the father of us all, passed his sinfulness down to each of us, but that each of us have willingly participated. We have sinned. Not one human other than Jesus himself who didn't descend from Adam, but not one human other than he has ever reached the age where they knew right from wrong and not chosen wrong. Not willingly participated in the sinful behavior of humanity. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Right there, right here is the answer. This is what happened to our world. This is what happened to our lives. Humans chose to seek independence from God. Humans chose to try to come up with the knowledge of good and evil on their own, to figure it out for themselves, to figure out what's helpful, what's hurtful in relationships and in life and how we deal with our environment. We chose to try to figure it out for ourselves, and from that point on, we just merely compounded one problem on top of another, making it more complex, more confused, more destructive. Because the only hope that we have 
of really knowing good from evil is God. Is learning it from Him. He's the designer. He knows how it works. Apart from Him, we cannot figure it out on our own. We were not designed to. It is impossible. All we do is just further mess up. Now the next verses describe the consequence of these sins. The, uh, I, I'm going to skip down to verse 16 because I want to come back to what God said to the serpent. But, but as we go through this, I want you to pay attention. I want you to notice how the consequence affects every area of our design. It addresses, it deals with every area of our personality. And we were, we were designed to work, to bring beauty to this world. Notice how the, the consequences affect that. We were designed as sexual beings, to be in loving partnership with one like ourselves, yet different, who we could support and submit to and encourage and love. Notice how the consequences affect that. We were designed to, for procreation, to fill the earth. Notice how the consequences affect that. And as we go through, think about how these consequences are manifest in your own life, your own struggles. To the woman, God said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Having children, though still a joy, a privilege, a blessing, will come with pain, heartache. And some will be childless. Some will die in childbirth. Children will rebel. The family will become a place of pain and conflict. And how often, how much we see that in our own lives and around us. And he said, the woman will desire her husband. Now, the way that, that word desire is used elsewhere makes us suspicious that it might imply a desire to control. God said to, to, to Cain, as he was tempted, that sin desires you, desires to control you, to and this desire for her husband may very well be a desire to control him, to dictate to him how he lives and what he does, and to be critical when he doesn't meet her expectations. And men will dominate and oppress women. Again, this isn't the way it was supposed to be. This isn't the design. This is the effect of sin. This is the consequence of sin. And in every culture of the world, especially those cultures that have not been softened by the gospel, men dominate and oppress women. Rather than there being a loving service, a mutual submission as partners, as they work together to bring beauty to to the rest of the earth, to, to love each other, support each other, build each other up, men and women become opponents. And sexual unity becomes confused and painful, sometimes even degrading and, and, and brutalizing. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. You spend your life working hard, then you die. Life is hard, then you die. See, the earth would no longer be a willing participant in providing food and and shelter for humans. Now these things must be wrestled from a hostile world. Work becomes frustrating. No longer would work simply be a joyful uh, expression of of creative energy and effort to, to, to beautify the world. No longer would it be a working with our environment, but it becomes a virtual war which humans are left diseased, starving, burned, drowned. And our world, our environment is raped, slashed, scarred. See, what we have as we look at the consequences of sin is the root of all of the problems that we face in our life and our world. The account goes on. God um, makes uh, uh, animal skin clothing for Adam and Eve. They see death for the first time, physical death for the first time. And then God, out of His gracious love, he, he, he uh, banishes Adam and Eve from the garden so that they don't eat of the tree, in life, a tree of life and live forever in a fallen state in such struggle and misery. Because that would be a horrible condemnation. God gives to them what they're asking for. He, he, he banishes them from the garden where He walks. He sends them out of His presence. And that is death. That is the cutting off of what we were designed for. God said to Adam, on the day you do this, you will surely die. Did he? Absolutely. Immediately he began to cover up and to hide from God. And God essentially gave him what he sought because of the guilt in his heart now. Sent him out of his presence. And man was cut off from God. And in that situation, that condition, humans are left for themselves to try to figure out good and evil, to try to figure out what's right and what's wrong, what's healthy, what's destructive, what's going to be beneficial, what's going to ruin things. And we stumble around with our own ideas, with our own feelings. But because of guilt and because of the continued deception of the enemy, we consistently try to do that in a way that proves we don't need God. We can do it on our own. From that point, physical death came. On a most basic level, the bacteria that was in the ground to to keep it rich and fertile began to to mutate and infest human bodies and other living things, bringing sickness and death. Accidents begin to happen. Humans begin to kill each other. At every level of creation, things begin to deteriorate and degrade. All of creation was subject to futility and death. And again, that's the world we live in. 
That's the reason it is like it is. But God doesn't leave us there. All the way through this account, there are glimpses of God's goodness. I mean, God came to Adam and Eve. He pursued them. He knew that they had sinned. But he didn't just right then smash them, uh, start over, re-roll the ball of clay and make something new, something better. He came to them and he engaged them in conversation. He really sets them up to confess. He asks them questions, giving them opportunity to, to admit their sin and to turn to him and to trust him to fix it. But they don't. And even in the consequences, God retards the process of this earth spewing out humanity, getting rid of it. He slows it down so that we have opportunity to turn to Him and to trust Him and ask Him to fix it. He's given us time. And even in allowing the consequences, allowing work to become frustrating, a man cannot find ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction in their work. We cannot find ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction in our families. And this is God's grace so that we keep looking because it's only in Him that we will find true life. That's what we were designed for. Him. Knowing Him. Walking with Him. Loving relationship with Him. But the ultimate expression, the ultimate message of grace comes clearly in, in what's called the Proto-Evangelium. The, the, the first hint of the Gospel. And that's seen in what God says to the serpent. He tells the serpent that you're going to bite the dust, literally. And then in verse 15, he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is the first gospel, the first good news, that one of the descendants of the woman, not of the man, Adam, this person would be born of a virgin. And this person, this man, would crush the head of Satan, would utterly destroy him. But in the process, Satan would wound him, would hurt him. This is the first glimpse we have of the cross. The man that is being talked about here is Jesus. Jesus himself tells us that he came to, to destroy or to undo the works of Satan. Satan's work of keeping mankind in confusion and in darkness, following the lies, keeping us messed up and messing up. And he came to bring life, abundant life. That is to restore us into a right relationship with God, with our Creator, where we could walk with Him, learn from Him. That's real life, knowing God. It's only... As we face our sin, our sinfulness, and we turn to Jesus and we allow Him to remove our guilt. He's already died to do that. He longs to do that. And allow Him to restore us into a relationship with our Creator where we can walk with Him every day, every minute of the day, learning from Him, asking Him, talking to Him about how we love, what's right, what's wrong, what's healthy what's destructive, and how we work, and how we express our sexuality as we walk with Him and learn from Him. It's only as we're restored to that right relationship do we stop being part of the destruction of this earth and all of the people on it and become His instruments of healing love. 
And as we are restored to right relationship, as we are reborn spiritually, we can again address work in a healthy way. It'll still be frustrating. It'll still have disappointments and and things that happen that, that, that we don't like. As long as we are living on this fallen earth, there will still be the effects, the consequences of sin. But trust, faith will replace fear. We will trust God to take care of us, to provide for our needs, so that we can put our attention on bringing His beauty to our workplace, to the lives of the people we work with, to the things that we produce. In relationship, as we're restored to that proper relationship, as we're reborn spiritually, then all of our other relationships then can be expressions of love, of submission, kindness, generosity, affirming, building in all of our relationships. See, bad things still happen. This uh, life here often is not good. But God is. And in the midst of the mess, we can be truly alive. We can be in relationship with Him. Walk with Him. Interact with Him. Learn from Him. Every day, through the day. We can work creatively, productively for His glory. We can love and submit and build and encourage in all of our relationships. Like I said, bad things still happen. And this life is not good many times and in many ways. But God is. He continues to be gracious and to love us, to care for us. The mess is our fault, all of ours, all of humanity. And none of us can just blame everyone else. We have each added our part. None of us, not one of us can say it's not my fault. But we can say it's not God's fault. He is good. Up at Dry Creek Cemetery is a profound expression of this reality. Up at, at, at the cemetery is the grave of Julie Williamson. Most of you know Julie. She uh, worshipped here as her family still does. Last July 1st, Julie was killed in an automobile accident, leaving Greg and and their three children here without her for now. I don't understand that. That confuses me. Why would that happen? God, why would you let that happen? It hurts. It confuses. It, It causes me again to say, life isn't good. Shouldn't be this way. But on her gravestone, by faith, her family holding on to the truth in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of the disappointment and heartache, her family wrote, by faith, on her gravestone, the three words, God is good. We can walk again with our loving Creator. Let's pray. God, You are good. I confess how many times when I face the painful reality that uh, life isn't, that this world isn't, how often I turn on You, accuse You of not being good. I fail to see Your grace, Your love expressed over and over. 
Lord, I pray for each one here, for those who don't know you yet, who still live in the darkness, who are still being warped and confused by the lies that you're not good, that you're trying to rip us off, that it's somehow a degradation of our humanity to submit to you in loving obedience. Lord, free them. Open their eyes this morning. If you're in that situation, I appeal to you by what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Turn to God. Say, I have sinned. I am sorry. Please, please fix me. Take me. Teach me life. Let me walk with you every day. For those of you who know him, let this be a, a time to reaffirm that. Listening to him, walking with him. First thing when you wake up in the morning, all through the day, asking him what's right, what's healthy, what's good. He's the only source of the knowledge of good. Lord, we worship you. You have loved us. You came to die on the cross to remove our guilt, to remove our fear, so that we could walk freedom and in trust. You are good, and we praise you. Amen.